Welcome to American Snippets, your source for inspirational, motivational, and selfless stories and interviews from exceptional people across the nation. And now, here's your host, Barb Allen and Dave Brown. Hi there, this is Barb Allen with episode 79 of American Snippets. We're doing something a little different today as we're bringing you a compilation, a mix-up, mash-up, whatever that word is, of different stories of people that we've had the great pleasure of interviewing in the past. And today we're going to focus on turning pain into purpose. It is something near and dear to our hearts, as well as several of the people that we've had the pleasure of interviewing So many of us have so many terrible things that happen in our lives, and they leave us to cope with different levels of pain. Quite often, this pain can outweigh our coping skills, which sets us up for further disaster. Now, we've learned, not just through our own lives, but through the people that we've interviewed, the importance of getting the upper hand on this pain before it leads you down a path that's even more difficult to return from. We've also had the opportunity to meet and interview people from all over this country with their own incredible stories of turning pain into purpose. Today, we're going to share some of those snippets of their stories with you so that we can pile it all into one message focusing on the potential we all have to get the upper hand on our pain before it takes us down for good. Dave Reaver is somebody we interviewed in episode 29. I was so nervous to interview him, and he was so nice. Dave Reaver is somebody that I've known about for a long time. I've heard him speak a couple different times, and when we reached out to him, he was right on board with sharing his story to us with us. He is a Vietnam veteran who was um, on a mission one day, and he was about to throw a grenade when a sniper shot that grenade right out of his hands as he was poised to throw it. And the ensuing injuries that he suffered were beyond description, and yet he manages to do so so well. He had tremendous injuries. He was declared dead at least once, wanted to die several times, made a remarkable, remarkable recovery, has undergone dozens of surgeries. Still today, he's continuing to undergo surgeries to repair and restore as much of himself as is humanly possible to do. And yet he's using his pain to help others navigate their own in an incredible way. So sit tight. In this snippet here, he's going to talk about his injury, how he was declared killed in action, and uh, how even though he what he's going through is horrible, can be hard to hear, that he uses laughter and uh, and humor to get through it. On July the 26th, 1969, I picked up a white phosphorus hand grenade. I was in a kill zone. I knew where I was. I knew the risk. Three days earlier, I had taken my first injury for which I'd received a Purple Heart. On the 23rd of July, I received a Purple Heart. Now, I didn't get it that day, but that was the injury. And on the 26th of July, I would take the hit that would take me down so hard, nobody believed I could live through it. I picked up the white phosphorus grenade and I pulled the pin and I drew back to throw it. It was the last moment of my aggressiveness Mm -hmm. in war. It was the last move I would make of aggression against my enemy. When the hand grenade was right beside my ear, a sniper somewhere pulled off a round. He was shooting at my head, I think, and he hit my hand and it blew right here. The grenade exploded six inches from my right ear. Every military person knows right now. You don't live through that. Yeah. You just cannot live through that. Right. That thing burns, I've been told, at 5,000 degrees Fahrenheit. You can put that on top of the engine of a vehicle 
and it'll melt the engine down. It's twice the heat necessary to melt that engine down. It blew six inches from my right ear and it just stripped my face off. Yeah. Blew my hair off, blew my ear off, ripped my mouth off. You could see in my mouth and the cheek. I looked down, I could see my heart beating. My chest was ripped open. My back was on fire. Skin was dripping everywhere. My left thumb was blown off. Even that was gone. I tell her, they made that out of my hip. Actually, Barbara, they made it out of my hip. Wow. I tell people, I don't suck it. <laughs> don't suck your <laughs> hip. That'd be very difficult on your neck. <laughs> and this thumb was blown off and these three fingers, if you can see that. Yeah. These three fingers were blown off. They don't work. They got them back on. They just don't work. But I got one finger that works. And uh, I looked at the damage and I was pumping blood out of an open artery shooting right out of this wrist because this was blown off down to here. And it was pumping blood out with every beat of my heart. So I could see my heart pump and then you and I could see the blood go. And it so amazed me. I fell over backwards. I had jumped off the boat, swam to the riverbank, and I was on my knees when I saw this damage. Well, I just fell over backwards. My legs were folded under me. And I, everybody listed me right then. They said, he's, he's dead, KIA. And it went through my chain of command that I was KIA. They corrected that 34 years later. Think what? of that. 34 years what? later, they found him dead. So here, Dave is going to tell us about how uh, the people at the hospital had him make out his last will because even they didn't believe he was going to ultimately survive his injuries. He talks about his lowest moments, even sharing with us his suicidal moments and his suicide attempt. But then he goes right into what helped him push through those moments. The helicopter landed to pick me up. It's called a dust off. Mm-hmm. And my guys were there and they all think I'm dead. They just rolled me over face down on the stretcher. Well, I was still burning. And phosphorus was being pulled by gravity through my body as it burned. It was being pulled through. When they flipped me over, they saved my life. Now the, the phosphorus is coming out of me, and it set the stretcher on fire. And the stretcher ripped open, and I fell through on my head. You know, it was just one of those days when nothing goes right. <laughs> they rolled me up in wet blankets and got oh me on another God. stretcher. Got me in the helicopter, and away we go. And the medic is filling out paperwork about how I was killed, when I was killed, and who killed me, and all that stuff. They still think I'm dead. I can't respond. I have nothing to respond with. My strength is totally zapped. They had me under the blanket, and a hole burned through my throat underneath or beneath my vocal cords, which spared them from being destroyed, although they were burned from inhaling the phosphorus, but the hole went through beneath and I was breathing through that hole. To get air to come out my mouth, I had to plug that hole. And I stuck my finger in my chest and I yelled, medic, and when I did, (laughs) it scared him so bad, he almost jumped out of that helicopter. I lost control. We're dropping like a rock and I'm thinking, holy cow, (laughs) now we're gonna crash and I'll be the only survivor. (laughs) And they got me to Saigon. And then put me on a big hospital jet and sent me to Japan to die. And there, a Red Cross volunteer whose husband had been a commanding general over there with the Air Force had retired. And they loved Japan and they stayed there. But she volunteered at the hospital and she took my last will and testament. That tells you I was hanging on by a thread. Yeah. Here, Dave tells us what changed after those dark moments, what changed in events, what changed in his own mind and his spirit and will, and convinced him that he wanted to stay in the fight long enough at least to return to America. And I asked for a mirror. And I was wrong to ask, and they were wrong to bring it. 
And when they brought the mirror and I looked up, I had this eye still to see with. And I looked in that mirror and what I saw, there wasn't a teenage kid in America could love it. Yeah. And I knew it's over. Don't even talk to me. She cannot love a freak and a monster. And they walked away and I decided I would take my life. I'm ashamed of that. But I didn't want her to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And I made a promise that I broke and I couldn't change the fact that that bell had rung and I couldn't unring that bell. So I decided to take my life and I had no gun. I had no knife, but I had that tube running in me and I pulled that sucker out and I laid my head back and waited to die. And I got hungry. <laughs> it was the wrong tube. I pulled lunch. You can die that way, but it's going to take a while. You know what I mean? <laughs> and if you smell a pizza, yeah. you're plugging it back in. I can tell you, you don't want to die. Yeah. But I didn't want to live. And sometimes living is so much more difficult than dying. But I didn't want to die. I wanted Brenda, and I couldn't have her, and I didn't want her to see me. <laughs> it was so much. I was being torn every direction. And the doctor came in, and he chewed me out good for pulling that tube, and they hooked me all back up. And they said, if you can pull that tube, we can send you to America. So they canceled the flight wow. to bring Brenda to where I was. And when they canceled that flight, I had to live. She was waiting to see me. This part of Dave's story is going to resonate specifically uh, well, with a lot of people, but most specifically, I think, with anybody who has suffered an injury, is going through an illness, and spends a lot of time and effort and energy worrying, feeling guilty about putting the people they love through experiencing this with them. Dave absolutely experiences that. He gets very emotional when he talks about that very openly, and he talks about how it all worked out for them. My last five surgeries were not five 45 years ago, 48 years ago. I've had 55 surgeries, wow. and the last five were in the last year at Brooke. I'm back where I started my recovery. She walked up to my bed. She shouldn't have to deal with that. She's dealt with it for 50 years, Barbara. 50 years later, we're still together. That day she looked at me. She said, I just want you to know I love you. Welcome home, Davy." And she kissed me. I got to tell you something. Angels mm-hmm. do not always come with wings on their backs. Sometimes they bring wings to your hope. For once, I believed I could live. So here Dave talks about how things started turning around for himself in his own life and for his wife as well, and his decision to turn tragedy into a triumph. That's the difference yeah. in being having a horrific story or yeah. having a healing story. Yes. And we yeah. can take our tragedy, you and me, yeah. we can take our tragedy and we've turned it into a triumph. Dave's story is not one of an immediate injury, an immediate recovery. He has struggled over the years to maintain his health and improve his health. He has setbacks and struggles. It was a horrible injury. He talks about the pain and the dark times. But here is the part where he talks about coming through all of that and how specifically he's using his experience to help others. You and I have done something that many others can look at and say, Why don't we give it a shot? Here it is. 
instead of sitting around with a pity party and feeling sorry for ourselves, we turned our attention to helping others. Today, my program is recognized by the Department of Defense as a good program because they keep sending me the active duty wounded that come from the battlefield to this day. They come to our program. It's called Operation Warrior Reconnect. And over and over and over, they've sent me thousands of them to our ranches. I have one in Colorado, one in Texas. And we take these youngsters that you were just describing who would in any other situation not have much to come back and expect to turn into a positive way. Mm -hmm. They come back broken. They come back distraught, distressed, suicidal. And the suicide among our wounded returning is horrific. It's unacceptable. It's a hemorrhaging. You and I are on this program today to help stop, not to mention those that are already retired of 22 a day. Mm -hmm. So here's the here's what I I think the enemy of our soul, the enemy. I'm talking about if you believe in right and wrong, good and evil, you believe there's a devil and I believe he's there. I believe he's done everything in his power to destroy you and destroy me. But there's the other enemy in the natural, that enemy in terrorism, that enemy in my day called communism. And there's not much difference in their objectives to destroy freedom. And I want to tell you something. They did us a favor. In the long run, we've done more to save more lives than if we had lost our lives or if you'd lost your husband for nothing. We have turned his tragedy. We've turned my tragedy around. And today there are thousands and thousands of youngsters who could have easily gone into that dark place of despair. We've changed their lives by turning on the light in their darkness. And girl, I can say to you, reach on. Continue reaching into that dark place for those moms and those women who relate to you better than anybody. And I'll do the same for the young men and women in our reach. Many of us know the story of Chris Kyle, the American sniper, but fewer of us know about the man, his good friend, Chad Littlefield, who died alongside Chris that day. Chad was not in the military as a lot of people thought he was. He was simply an American citizen who really supported the military, had a great appreciation for them and his friend Chris, and was doing what they love to do, were passionate about doing, which is giving back and serving veterans when they both lost their lives. Chad's family was devastated by his loss. They remained devastated by their loss. But like anybody who has lost somebody that they love, know and understand, your choice is either to push through that grief or let it destroy you too. His family chose to push through and honor Chad by following his legacy. Operation Valor is a nonprofit established and run by Sean Valagura, who we also got to feature in episode number 75. Through Operation Valor, Chad's family is able to help veterans. We got resources. We call someone and say, hey, we got a soldier. Hey, can we get some help? Had a guy that called me from uh, Miami and or in the Florida area. He needed someone in Miami. Well, we're in Texas. I don't know anybody in Florida. So I made some phone calls, we made connections, and we got that soldier some help. Um, with other organizations that, that Operation Enduring Warriors, who we vetted this last year, that groups that help wounded soldiers overcome and kind of get back in the saddle, per se. And they do things like uh, Spartan Race, where they do some right. uh, o- obstacle racing, mm-hmm. which is very impressive because if these guys that are missing a limb, that are doing everything and I'm just overweight and old. It inspires me. (laughs) 
I can pick up that sandbag. I don't have any excuses. And, and it's very inspiring to see how these groups are, are doing. Um, we have some other groups that we, uh, we vetted last year and we're, we are, we're looking at, I think four more groups this year. And if you go to Operation Valor, uh, on our Facebook page, you'll see the upcoming events that, that it's going to, it's going to be pretty good this year. So I'm pretty excited to see how it's going to pan out. That all sounds amazing. And it is, I mean, Operation Valor really does achieve and accomplish incredible things to help veterans and they are just getting going just like Chad's family is in their path through their grief. And anybody who has lost somebody who struggles with that loss, hopefully is finding some outlet for themselves to carry on the legacy of that person lost the way that the little fields are doing. They know it's not easy. We all know it's not easy. Grief is a terrible thing. It can consume us. This is how the little fields, Chad Littlefield's family is surviving and enduring and finding their way through grief and anger. Um, and we were asked early on, uh, you know, Chris and Chad were, were killed helping a veteran. Right. They uh, People have said, how can you reach out to veterans? That's who killed your son. And you can't lump um, everybody in, into one thing. Yeah. And uh, the family, we decided early on that we were not going to get bitter. That uh, angry, revenge, all of that. Is just like somebody drinking poison and expecting, you know, someone else to die. And we weren't going to get into that root of bitterness. And we were going to get better over this, which is what Chad would have wanted. He would not have wanted us to uh, sink back and quit living uh, just because he was gone. And I think his spirit has moved us on to go on and do, um, you know, what he was all about. Um, well, and, and we were, we've been told, and it, and it makes a lot of sense. There's two deaths that someone goes through. Yeah. The first death is when their soul leaves earth and goes to heaven or wherever, you know, but, <laughs> our, you know, going yeah. to heaven. The second death is when people forget him, when people forget what they sounded yeah. like, what they, what they looked like, what, what their favorite things were. What we are getting to do is to continue his legacy with him, what him and Chris were doing, which helps us to remember, reminisce. And then when strangers come up and go, I, I, I know who Chad was and what, you know, it's just like, wow, you know, so yeah. at this point in our life, we're going to continue with what Chad was doing and we will continue to keep his life and memory going for as long as we can. Because that's how, how we heal. Back in episode 61, I had the opportunity to interview somebody else that I've also known and admired for a really long time. One of the organizations that has helped me and my family, as well as thousands of people across this country who have lost somebody who served in the military at any point and was lost to us through any path, is able to go to find comfort, support, and resources. Bonnie Carroll is the founder of all of that. Here she's going to tell us about that organization, how she started it. But first, she's going to start off just sharing with us what it was like for her in those early days after losing her husband, the lowest point on her path, and what helped her move forward. You know, a turning point for me when I was in a very, really dark place following Tom's death, 
I was talking to this very wise woman and, you know, I was just saying, I, I can't go on. I can't live like this. I just can't, I, I can't go on without him. He was everything, my whole world and it's gone. And she said, well, she said, well, knowing how much this hurts and how painful this is, she said, would you rather never have met? And it was such a, it was such a shock. It was like a slap in the face. I said, no, no, no. I, I had no, I have no regrets. I just wanted more. It wasn't enough. And she just looked at me and she said, and it never would have been enough. And that's a blessing. And that really just took me back. And then she said, did he, did he enrich your life? And oh my gosh, it was just such a wonderful question. And I said, oh, in so many ways. He was amazing. It was unconditional love. He taught me everything. And he was, a, he was a great dad. He was a great leader. He was a wonder, everything. It was just amazing. And I went on and on and on. She finally had to, you know, I, until I was exhausted. Yes. Uh, and she just looked at me, kind of smiling. And she said, well, she what are you going to do with all those riches? Wow. And it, it was such a, such an epiphany. It really flipped things around. So it, it really made me think instead of what I'd lost, it was about what we had, that it just wanted more of it, that it never would have been enough. Right. Whether we have someone for, you know, you know, 19 years or, or 90 years or, or whatever the length of time, it never would have been enough, but we had them. And that little while is precious. And now we have the opportunity to actually use the riches they gave us to make a difference in this world. So I've mentioned TAP several times in other podcast episodes and here in this one. Here we're going to listen to Bonnie explain what TAPS is. My husband was killed in an Army aviation accident back in 1992. And at that time, you know, I was a military reserve officer. I had worked in government. I had been involved in nonprofit organizations, actually ones that supported people who had experienced tragedy. And uh, so when Tom was killed, I had that brief moment where I thought, gosh, I'll, you know, I've had all this training, all this experience. I'll be able to help my own family, the, the military unit. I'll be able to, you know, really get get us through this. And, and suddenly I could not breathe. And life was forever changed profoundly. And as I was digging out of that very dark place, I started looking for the kind of groups that I knew existed for other types of loss in our society, because this is America and we have a group for everyone. And yeah, there was a brief period where I thought, well, I'll just go to the group that I know for police officers. And those were not my people. They were not speaking my language. I went to the group that I was actually on the board of for homicide survivors or people who had lost a loved one to homicide and likewise, they were not speaking my language. I wasn't waiting for a court date and there wasn't a perpetrator and there, you know, all of these things just weren't part of my experience. Here, Bonnie's going to talk about her idea, how she got the idea to start TAPS instead of just joining another existing group out there. Where were these tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of military bereaved families that I knew had to exist? And over the course of that two years, of doing needs assessment and gap analysis and talking to the government and the private sector and every other organization I could find came to the conclusion, wow, it really didn't exist and never had. So set about 
examining what the need was. I certainly didn't have the energy or didn't want to create or duplicate something that already existed. And very carefully looked at programs like Gold Star Wives, Society of Military Widows, Gold Star Mothers, to see what they were doing and, and if there were gaps between what they provided and offered and what the government offered. And there were four services that really neither was addressing nor would they ever address. And those were peer-based emotional support. That family of all of us coming together to grieve a loved one, remember a life, and live that legacy that our loved ones left us. And also casework assistance that would fill the gaps between what the government provided and what was available elsewhere. We had a 24-7 helpline that started in October of 94 and has been answered live continuously without interruption for the past 24 years. And then the, the fourth service is connecting families to the support in their local community because it exists. There are grief groups, but if that wasn't part of your experience before, it can be very difficult to find it. So that's how CAPS was launched. And uh, today it is it has grown to be America's family. And uh, we are connected to the casualty officers. We reach families, hopefully immediately after their loss. Fear of failure is something that keeps many of us rooted in place. But the upside, if you want to call it that, of going through a tragedy like this is that those fears seem a little less enormous now. Bonnie here talks about her advice to others who may want to do something big, but they're also afraid of failing. You know, the driving force really for me is, are you making a difference in someone's life? Are you able to have a positive impact in this world? Is someone breathing easier because of what you are able to do? And if, and if that's what you're about and if that's what's happening, then it's always the right path forward. That's what we must do for each other. That is the best of humanity. It's, it's the only reason we all exist. In episode 13, I got to speak with Dr. Sean Stevenson. Sean was diagnosed at birth with osteogenesis imperfecta. This is a devastating disease for many people who are faced with it. They're, it's called brittle bone disease in other terms, and it is a lifelong condition that uh, severely limits what a lot of people do with their lives, but as you'll find out here, it did not limit Sean in very many ways. He talks about that prognosis and his doubters and the doctors. He talks about his hard days and himself being his own worst enemy. He talks about how to mentally and emotionally cope with that level of constant pain and struggles and how parents can help kids with illness or disabilities. So the challenge with that is I came into this world with doubters. And the beauty of that is I came into this world with doubters to compete against. And, you know, I know that it must have been traumatizing to my parents uh, to have been given the prognosis of my death, you know, within the first few hours of my life. Um, but it's kind of the beginning of a great story uh, that has continued to unfold. And as I tell my audiences, you know, 38 years later, all those doctors that told my parents that they're all dead <laughs> and I'm the only doctor in that room that remains. And, yeah. you know, it's it's been a 
it's been a journey. It's not been easy. Uh, there are days where uh, I doubt myself and become my own greatest enemy. So it's uh, it's a daily learning experience. Your parents, uh, I obviously, I read your book, and we're going to touch more on that later. I read this book. I love this book, and I'm going to continue harping on this book because it is one of those books, if I had had years ago when I was thrust into my own turmoil, would have helped me change change the game significantly before it got ugly on me. But um, in that book, you speak often of your parents as well, and they sound like such extraordinary people. I say this both as someone who's gone through things and as a parent who's raised children through our own trouble. Um, my husband died when my kids were very young. And so I had to lead them through that. And as a parent who has to help their child struggle with something and overcome something, I have such respect for how your parents addressed your life because they never saw it as anything to be addressed. They just saw it as this is our son and this is, they just saw it as the way it is. And um, you want to share some stories about some things that your parents did to help you as a child, where the, the timers they set for crying, you know, for how long that you were allowed to have your pity parties and um, some of the things they said to you, the fun things they did with your wheelchair and what that did for you as a child growing up for your own mindset to, to help you decide how you were going to, to deal with, with what you were dealing with. Yeah. So my parents... When I was young, they had the mentality of don't focus on what you can't do. Can't. Start focusing on what you can do. And they also had the mentality that it's okay to feel sorry for yourself, but you can't spend very long doing it. Um, you're not going to be able to be on the basketball team, but if you work hard enough someday, you could own a basketball team. Uh, they built floats around my wheelchair so that I had cool costumes. Like uh, I was a tractor one year. I was a bulldozer <laughs> one year. I was a race car. I was a coffin. I was, uh, you know, they just, the list goes on and on. And, um, you know, there's there's no doubt that I had a very painful childhood. But it it's not something I look back on in, in like, horror. It's like, you know, we... We dealt with it. We dealt the best we could with it. Here, Sean's going to talk about one of the pitfalls that we should absolutely avoid when we are faced with our own challenges. Well, to use a, I'm not a religious man. I was raised religious, but to use a Christianity term, uh, it doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or not uh, to understand this metaphor, but it's like everybody has their own cross to bear, right? And some people, the challenge that they carry is they were raised by parents that were not present or loving or or prepared to handle children. Some people were born with physical disabilities. Some people were injured later um, when they were growing up. Some people got abused by a teacher or, you know, we all go through life. Uh, with our own challenges, and no one comes out unscathed. I've never met a person, even those that feel like, oh, I had a decent childhood. If you peel back the layers, they had some form of trauma in some way. It may not be comparable to other people's traumas, but I found that pain is pain is pain. When you're cut from the high school basketball team and you made it your whole life's purpose 
to make the team. Right. That is heartbreaking to the child. If you are beaten as a child by your stepdad, that is heartbreaking. You you can get into this you know boxing match, if you will, of like, oh well, this one had it worse. But emotions are emotions are emotions. If you don't know anything else, that's the most pain you've ever been exposed to. That was a lot of pain. Um, and the challenge we get into as a society is when we say, well, my pain was worse than yours. Yes. So, so like, is losing a child more painful to a woman than a woman who is sexually assaulted? Is losing a job and not being able to afford your family's, you know, daily income and keeping them around, is that as challenging as coming down with a disease? Like, when we get into that game of which one's worse or I have it worse, Here, Sean's going to talk about how he responds to other people's reactions to his disability. You know, I still deal with ignorant racism, not racism, ignorant disabilityism, if you will, um, discrimination. And unlike, say, like racism or sexism, where there's a lot of like, like anger and hate there, when people discriminate against somebody with a disability, there's oftentimes just a, it's often a case of ignorance. It's, it's, they've never been exposed to it. They're uncomfortable. Uh, that doesn't make it right. It's just if you can learn how to educate people. And, you know, when I roll into somebody's life, my mentality is they may never have known somebody 3 feet tall in a wheelchair. And so it's my responsibility, in my view, to make the experience enjoyable and also teach them what's important and and how to interact with somebody with a disability. I feel like I'm an educator myself every day that I I come into the mainstream world that's not used to somebody with a disability. Maintaining our positivity can be tough for a lot of us, no matter how well or poorly our lives are going. Sean Stevenson does somehow manage to maintain that positivity, even when people are unkind or hurtful to him. Here he's going to share with us why he doesn't just get angry at people who are unkind to him, but chooses to treat them kindly instead. He's also going to tell us how he finds his work helps himself, even as it helps others. I don't do that because I'm some morally high evolved being. I I don't do that because that doesn't work. Right. (laughs) But you've taught yourself that you've learned that and you have that discipline and you have that capacity and you're you you have found a way to be at peace with that. Um, where it's it a daily get process. Yeah. It's a daily process because I think it's easy for somebody to listen to this program right now. On the other end of this microphone, there's somebody listening with headphones or speakers. Yeah. And they're like, oh gosh, I'd love to have Sean's view of the world. I'd love to be that confident, that positive, that happy. And what they're not tuning into then is the reality of the fact that I have to practice everything I'm teaching daily. Yes. And that's why I teach it. I tell people, if I didn't do what, I w- what I'm doing on this planet, I would be riddled with my insecurities. I would be a complete anxious, fearful, judgmental, frustrated human. And that's why I teach this is because I need to hear this day in and day out. Day, like even when people quote my own books, I'm like, ah, 
crap, I needed to hear that this morning, you know, and it's like, <laughs> just, be, just because you know something intellectually doesn't mean you don't need it conditioned daily. Every one of us can use these messages in our lives. I encourage anyone who's feeling stuck in your own pain to go back and listen to the full episodes of these interviews so you can get a better feel for these incredible people and their stories. Then, if you're feeling inspired by anything you've heard, make a commitment to yourself to act upon that inspiration. Take at least one thought that pops into your head after listening, write it down, and set a hard date for you to begin acting on it. I know, as well as anyone, how impossible it can seem to get out from underneath the weight of grief and unstuck from pain. I've carried lessons from all of these people into my own life, and it continues to make a difference in everything I do. You can do the same. Thanks so much for listening. Next week, we'll be bringing you Rob O'Neill, the former Navy SEAL, best known for firing the shots that killed bin Laden. Rob and his brother Tom spent time with us, sharing their stories, cracking us up, and leaving us with a renewed appreciation for all the things this country has to offer. 